Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. A brief lesson in audacity from Casey Stengel. Before becoming a manager, Stengel was a National League outfielder and a very good one. He was inconsistent, though, and as a left-handed hitter who had typical problems with same-side pitching, was often platooned, so he wasn't an MVP-level guy, but he was often a valuable contributor nonetheless. Not that anyone was paying attention to on-base percentage in 1914, but he led the league in that category that year, and once the lively ball came in, he proved to be a very solid line-drive type hitter. He was great for the New York Giants, in particular, he was the platoon center fielder on both the 1922 and 1923 pennant winners, though because of injuries he only played about half the time each year. Add them together, and you get about one full season, 490 at-bats of a 349 batting average, a 413 on on-base percentage, and a 524 slugging percentage with 20 doubles, 15 triples, and 12 home runs. It's hard to think of a modern analog for Casey, in part because he had an odd physique for a ball player. He was a boxy 5'10", with a center of gravity that looks way too close to the ground for him to have been any sort of athlete. There's a picture of him from the Giants period I quite like, and I have already posted it to the Facebook group, where he's posed throwing a ball in from the outfield. It would be a cliche to say that he looks like a fire hydrant, and he doesn't. He looks like a docking bollard. He looks as if he's waiting for a boat to pull up and throw a rope around him. So... This squat figure could really hit, but by the time the Giants phase of his career came around, he was already in his 30s. His legs were pretty clearly going on him, which affected both his availability and his defense. And he was miscast as a center fielder. Even when he was young, he was a corner guy. The Giants manager, John McGraw, really loved him on a personal basis. He sensed that as goofy and almost surrealistic as Casey could be, he was a kindred spirit. But... That never entered into McGraw's calculations for his baseball team. He acquired and dispensed with players he loved, and the opposite was true, too. In the case of a player like Buck Herzog, who pretty openly hated his guts, or Ed Roush the same, McGraw acquired them and reacquired them because he thought they might be helpful, and if they wanted to murder him, well, he could deal with it. Way back in episode 26, I talked about this moment in Stengel's career, about how Casey was the hero of the 1923 World Series, albeit in a losing cause. The Yankees won overall, but the games the Giants won, they won because of Casey's hitting. And after that, McGraw traded him to the Boston Braves, to the very dead, very broke, very not New York, very second division Boston Braves. As I said back in that earlier episode, Casey was really unthrilled to have been traded. He said, I hit two home runs in the World Series and I get traded to Boston. I suppose that if I had hit three home runs, I would have been traded to Terra Hout. In 1750, the poet Thomas Gray wrote something that was destined to live on, or at least one stanza of it. 
It's called Elegy Written in a Country Churchyard. And that stanza goes, The boast of heraldry, the pomp of power, and all that beauty, all that wealth e'er gave, awaits alike the inevitable hour. The paths of glory lead but to the grave. And Casey edited that to, The paths of glory lead only to the braves, which, again, given how perpetually down the Boston Braves were, and they were for about 30 years from 1916 through 1945, it was about as close to the baseball grave as you could go and still be in the major leagues. Parenthetically, you know to look out for my parentheticals, late in his career, Charles Schultz did a lithograph utilizing that quote, I wish I owned a copy. Snoopy is on top of his doghouse in his World War I flying ace regalia, and Linus stands below him saying, The paths of glory lead but to the grave. In response, Snoopy can only say, Rats, which may seem anticlimactic, but really is the only possible response other than maybe, Oh. You say, regardless of whatever life you lead, it all ends up in the same place? Oh well. I'm gonna quit mowing the lawn, Phyllis. So... Casey went off to Boston, had a good enough season in a tough park, although you can't tell because his manager, ex-Giants teammate Dave Bancroft, who was sent along with him, let him get out of the platoon role just enough to hurt his overall numbers. He only had about 50 at-bats versus left-handers, but he went something like 5 for 50, so he was roughly a 300 hitter against right-handed pitching, but overall the numbers look mediocre. The next spring, based on that performance and his legs going, he lost his starting job to a prospect named Jimmy Welsh, who didn't turn out to be anything special, although at 22-23 he probably was more sprightly than Casey was at 34 going on 35. But Bancroft barely used him. He didn't hit when he was used. He got one start all season long or into late May, and at that point, The Braves had a choice. They could eat his contract or find something else they could do with him. But the owner of the Braves, Judge Emil Fuchs, more about whom another time, didn't have the money to eat a contract. But he was in the process of acquiring an interest in a team in the Eastern League, the Worcester, Massachusetts Panthers, and he needed a manager for that club. Everyone knew via John McGraw, that Stengel was a managerial prospect, and of course he still could play some baseball, and if not at the major league level, he almost certainly could in the minors, and so Fuchs offered him the chance to go down to Worcester and give it a shot, and Casey figured, why not? I've got nothing going on in the majors, he had just gotten married, so he was looking for some more security, and off he went. Somehow it was reported in the papers that Casey had become a, quote, magnate by purchasing the Worcester team himself. That was not true. Later in life, when he and his wife owned a bank, some oil wells, and had interests in some lucrative patents, such as penicillin, I wonder if he could have swung it. He never did. Maybe it wasn't really possible because late in life he was asked, If he had it to do all over again, would he still become a player or a manager? And he said no, he would become an owner. Then again, ask that question another time, if he had it all to do over again, now that he was 80 years old or 
whatever he was at the moment that question was being asked. He lived to be about 85. Would you do it all the same way again? Would you become a ball player? And he said, no, I think I'd become an astronaut. So not the owner of the Worcester Panthers, but he was named team president, which essentially meant he was responsible for running the team and hiring the bus and all the basic things that a minor league general manager does. He was also the manager. He was also a player. When Casey hit Worcester, the team was only 9-15. and 15. Under Casey, the Panthers went 70-55. and 55. He also hit 302 in 100 games and started a lot of fights whenever possible. He also, and this is a wonderful bit of gamesmanship, I wonder how this would play if it happened today, started a decades-long rivalry with Leo DeRocher, who was 19, half his age basically, and playing shortstop for the Hartford Senators, also of the Eastern League at that time. And as we've discussed many times on this program, Leo could be very charming, but he also had a way of angering people with his cockiness and possibly with petty larceny in the clubhouse. For more on him, see episode 28, when Paul Dixon, the author of a new biography of Leo, was my guest. I'm not sure what it was that ticked Casey off in this particular instance, but DeRocher, who was never much of a hitter, Babe Ruth called him the All-American out, was hitting 208 in Casey's memory at that moment. And so before a game between the two teams, Casey went out to shortstop and scratched 208 in giant letters into the dirt. 40 years later, he was still laughing about that. Casey had done so well, he was thinking he just might make it back to the majors. He was also looking for something a little higher up, a bit more glamorous. Would you believe Toledo was more glamorous than Worcester? It was. The Giants co-owned the Mud Hens of the American Association and were casting about for a new manager because their old one had helped the Cubs steal Hack Wilson in exchange for a major league coaching job. Today, the commissioner would probably suspend you for a year and penalize the Cubs some draft picks for this kind of chicanery, but the transaction has gone down in history as a paperwork screw-up by the Giants. It was that, too, but no one would have found out if the manager had not had an ulterior motive and tipped the Cubs. John McGraw, who also had an interest in the team, put in a word with the owners that Casey would be the best man for the job, and Casey wanted that job. He'd be in the American Association, which was a top-level minor league. He'd be feeding players to his friend and mentor. He'd be one level down, whether as a player or as a coach or even as a manager, and with something like major league compensation as well. But due to the reserve clause, even though he was in the minors, he was enslaved to the Boston Braves, and Judge Fuchs was not going to let him go. So how do you get to Toledo? Fuchs had actually given Casey a clue as to how he might get away. This was when he was first sent down to Worcester and taken off the Braves' roster. Casey asked, quite innocently perhaps, what happens if another team claims me? Meaning, what if the rules of baseball kidnap me away from this managing job in Worcester? And Fuchs said, you're the club president, right? Just release yourself, meaning terminate your own contract and then you'll be a free agent and you can just re-sign with Worcester as the manager. With that in mind, Toledo was just a matter of a typewriter and four pieces of paper. Panthers manager Casey Stengel wrote a letter to his boss, team president Casey Stengel. 
Dear Mr. Stengel, Having an opportunity to improve my position by going to a higher classification as manager, I hereby tender my resignation as manager of the Worcester Club. I cannot leave without thanking you for your courtesy, consideration, and advice, which was of great help in running the club. Very truly yours, Casey Stengel. Team President Stengel received the letter and wrote back to Casey, Your letter came as a surprise, but we realize that ability should be rewarded. Therefore, I join the fans of Worcester in expressing our appreciation for your outstanding services rendered and wish you luck in your new position. We congratulate Toledo on getting your valuable services. Very truly yours, Charles D. Stengel. Stengel, the team president, then sent a telegram to Fuchs saying, Manager Charles Dylan Stengel is hereby and as of this date dismissed as manager of the Worcester Eastern League Club, Charles Dylan Stengel, President Worcester Baseball Club. Having now somehow quit and yet simultaneously also been fired and released, Team President Stengel tendered his resignation to the Boston Braves. The road to Toledo and thereby the major leagues was wide open. I'm Stephen Goldman. You find yourself in the locked cabin of your ambition. Brute force will not oblige to release you from a fate worse than failure, a jail sentence of pure occupational tedium. But if you possess wits enough, you might just evade that destiny and escape into the infinite inning. Welcome back to the show. Here I am releasing on a Friday afternoon again. We're back where we started. It wasn't my intention. If you're in our Infinite Inning Facebook group, I've already alerted you to this fact. But this week, unfortunately, my gray-haired old dad was struck by pneumonia. And at his age, it's dangerous for anybody really, but particularly at his age, That's a very dicey illness to come down with. I am happy to report that he now seems to be on the good side of it. I have joked with friends that now that he's got a lead, I hope that it's peak Mariano Rivera coming out of the bullpen and not 2019 Kenley Jansen. Sorry, Kenley. The man has had more close escapes than Indiana Jones, and I hope he has this one more in him. But the resultant disruption to my schedule was unavoidable and the funny thing was that I took a sick day myself on Monday thinking well if it's a typical week I can absorb that lost time I think I really wasn't feeling great and well as it turned out that same day was the day that he was hospitalized and so and I'm not blaming him for this obviously your parents took care of you and you love them and So you, if you have any humanity in you, you take care of them when they need your assistance, and he and my mother do. But 
there were ripples outward for every deadline that I faced. I know that many or all of you have been in this position or have watched your own parents take care of your grandparents in the same way and suffered these same disruptions. So I know that you will empathize, but still the deadlines for this show mean a lot to me. And I've said this before, it sounds like a sort of show businessy cliche. You mean a lot to me and I don't know you all personally, but the fact that you entrust me with your time means so much to me. It is such a huge gesture in these very pressured days, whether you have a sick loved one or not, that I want to honor that by being here for you too. This week, we once again dip back into the starting rotation with a return visit from David Roth. And this has been one of my favorite discussions that we've had, David and I, because in addition to baseball, we got into some personal stuff, and particularly about the fact that David met his wife on 9-11, the 9-11, and what it's like when the best thing to happen to you is also one of the worst days in the history of your nation. And that's a philosophical question about perspective that seemed really fascinating to explore. And also, during that conversation, we got to, I hope, this doesn't bother anyone. I handled it obliquely and tastefully, but this is kind of an interesting question for those of us who are sports fans. Sometimes you have to choose between the intimacy of your relationship and your intimacy with your team, which is to say that when the mood strikes, do you choose the ninth inning or do you choose the ninth inning? He said, wiggling his eyebrows suggestively without really knowing why. As it's David, we got into some of our usual favorite topics, including the Let's Remember Some Guys video series, which shot some special Los Angeles-centered episodes recently, or shall I say Beverly Hills-centered episodes. And for once, it is timely and topical for us to talk about the New York Mets, given that they are making a real charge towards a wild card. It seems anticlimactic, I admit, but given the hole that they had dug for themselves earlier on and how there was this drumbeat to fire the manager and the general manager and the grounds crew and the beer men, this does seem like something of an accomplishment. At least there's some excitement. It is very gratifying to see, regardless of whether you're a Mets fan or not. I will also warn you that David recently wrote some mostly pure political stuff for the New Republic, and we talk about that as well. It does veer in and out of baseball because, oddly enough, David's springboard for the series, without spoiling too much of the later discussion, was a proposed Saturday morning cartoon series starring our current president, and I can only imagine it was intended that he travel around the country in a groovy van with a bunch of teenagers and a talking horse, maybe Gary Coleman too, I don't know, but he would solve problems, among them those of baseball, and in specific, the New York Yankees, because clearly they need his help very desperately. This, of course, brings to mind the president's previous experience in sports, that of being the owner of the USFL New Jersey Generals franchise. If you want to learn more about that, it was the subject of my interview in episode 74 with Jeff Perlman, the author of A New History of the USFL, which does spend a significant amount of time on that episode. 
A couple of other clarifications. David calls Skunjili squid. It's not. It's conquer whelk. I spent a lot of time researching this because I had read something recently about restaurants swapping out fried calamari for fried conch, which is sea snail, essentially, or vice versa. I could not find this at all. I wanted to warn you all about this insidious plot, although I'm not sure how much it really matters, because the truth is, admit it, most foods, if you bread them, fry them, and drown them in marinara sauce or some such, you can't really tell the difference very well, can you? And as evidence thereof, and I will issue this as sort of a warning, though it's not clear it happened in the United States while researching that very topic, I came across the fact that overseas restaurants have sometimes been caught replacing calamari not with sea snail, which sounds relatively benign, but with a obscene part of the pig's anatomy. I suppose to the pig it's not obscene, it's merely functional. I'm not going to be more specific than that, but I guess it's round, it's rubbery, it must look and have the texture of calamari. There are a lot of things I just don't want to go into detail about in this show. You learn so much that you didn't intend to learn when you voyage in the infinite inning. One other clarification, this one, a pure baseball one. Late in the episode, when we are talking about the president and the Yankees, and specifically the 1990s iteration thereof, David mentioned Danny Tartable, and I brought up that one of my favorite stats, which I could not look up in the heat of the moment, lest I disrupt the scintillating flow of the conversation. One year during his Yankees tenure, Danny Tartable never had one hit when the count was 0-2. I know that all hitters suffer when the count is 0-2. It is hard to hit successfully when you have but one strike to work with. That said, it does happen this year. For example, the batting average after the count has reached 0-2, this is the major league average, is 168. So hitters don't hit that way often, but they get away with it. And if you look over the history of baseball, many players have really hung tough in that situation. They are a different style of hitter, generally speaking, than Danny Tartable, a free-swinging home run guy. But in 1990, for example, Dave Magadan, one of my favorites, hit 375 in 50 plate appearances in which he went down 0-2. In 2007, Placido Polanco hit 402 in 103 plate appearances that began that way. There are dozens of seasons like that. So it sounds like hyperbole, but it really wasn't. In 1993, Tartable went 9 for 87, that's a 103 batting average, when he got behind 0-2. In 1994, when swinging on an 0-2 count, he went 0 for 18. If he somehow got a ball on 0-2, he still went 3 for 58, with 35 strikeouts, that's a .052 batting average. In 1995, he was 1 for 23 when swinging 0-2, and after that count, he was 6 for 47, or 128. In total, to the extent that we have pitch count stats that go back to the beginning of the Yankees franchise, we only have a fraction of that, actually, but 
Tartable is the worst player in Yankees history when hitting behind in the count. It really was over at two strikes, just like all those wonderfully evocative stories of Walter Johnson and players like Babe Ruth walking away from the plate on 0-2 and the umpire saying, you have another strike coming, son, and the Babe saying, you keep it, I can't use it. Well, Tartable truly could not use that last strike. It was going to be wasted almost inevitably. I have one other story to tell you before I roll David in here, but at this stage, as we are almost 25 minutes in, I would like to take a short break. I refer to this classic baseball song later in the episode, and I feel like I refer to it all the time, so why not actually use it? Hello, Joe. What do you know? We need a hit, so here I go. Ball one. So the first thing we need to discuss is that unlike Mickey Mantle on Teresa Brewer's I Like Mickey from later on, that was not actually Joe DiMaggio, but a loose impression of him by a member of Les Brown's Band of Renown. The woman you heard speaking was vocalist Betty Jane Bonner, who you will hear again in just a moment, and the song, written by Alan Courtney and the appropriately named Ben Homer, originated from October 1941. I will leave the rest to Betty and see you on the other side. Baseball's famous streak that's got us all aglow. He's just a man and not a free. Jolton Joe DiMaggio. Joe, Joe DiMaggio, we want you on our side. He tied the mark at 44, July the 1st, you know. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. That Jolton Joe DiMaggio, it's kind of a sabermetric song in that, to really get it, you have to have a decent knowledge of the record book. He tied the mark at 44 July the 1st, you know. What mark? What does 44 mean? 44 what? Bananas? What the hell do you mean, Jolton Joe DiMaggio, we want you for our analytics department? I've never heard of any of that. Well, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but you see what I mean. The song showed up, as I said, in October 1941. By December, we were at war, and thoughts of that probably vanished pretty quickly, but it was fun while it lasted, and I am not the first nor the last to point out that DiMaggio's streak was a way of counting time, of saving time, hoarding it before the war came to our shores, given that it was already taking place overseas and had been since September 1939. As I said before, we are joined by Dr. David Roth. I want to tell you one more thing. 
I want to talk about Rogers Hornsby. I was doing some research this week, in my copious spare time, I mean, and I realized that very selectively it was possible to feel sympathy for Rogers Hornsby, not in general, but in a very specific moment. And I want to tell you about that. As you know, Rogers Hornsby was one of the greatest hitters of all time, or at least of his time. His career 358 batting average, second only to Tyrus Cobbs. And although Hornsby was not supposed to be much of a glove at shortstop, his original position, or at second base, the position at which he's remembered, his overall game was so far ahead of that of his National League contemporaries that during his prime, he dominated the wins above replacement leaderboards like Mike Trout does today. Obviously, that knowledge is retroactive. That kind of overall encompassing value stat had not been created then and wouldn't be for many decades, but we do have the benefit of that. It gives us much clearer hindsight than people had at the time. And so we can look back as baseball reference figures it, Hornsby was the most valuable position player in the National League in 11 of 13 seasons from 1917 through 1929. The two years he missed were 1923, when he was injured for about a quarter of the season, still finished second in wins above replacement, and 1926, when he had something of an off year by his standards, and yet you can't say it was a bad year because as player-manager of the Cardinals, he took his team to the World Series and won it with the help of Grover Cleveland Alexander, whom, to be fair, Hornsby called in from the bullpen at the crucial moment, and also a very ill-timed Babe Ruth caught stealing. The most amazing thing about Hornsby, though, is not his performance, but that, in spite of that performance, it's impossible to like him. For all the grief that Cobb has taken for being an out-of-control, at least somewhat racist rage machine, Cobb could actually pass for a normal human being and probably did so 90% of the time, certainly when he was younger. If you had lunch with Ty Cobb and asked the wrong question, sure, he might blow up with you. He had no temper control. But if you stuck to safe topics, he'd be fine. You'd go away thinking Ty Cobb was a fine guy. Hornsby wouldn't necessarily blow up at you, but he just might not say anything at all. Or if he did deign to say something, it might be something really hurtful or offensive. One of the most oft-repeated Hornsby stories is from 1927, his one year playing for the New York Giants. A reporter spotted him at lunch, walked up to the table, this was during spring training, and said something like, Raja, can the Giants win the pennant this year? And Hornsby said, not with Farrell playing shortstop. He was referring to a player named Ed Doc Farrell. He was a doctor. He was a dentist, specifically. He was due to start at short because the incumbent, Travis Jackson, a future Hall of Famer, albeit a borderline one, was out with a case of appendicitis. And frankly, Hornsby was probably right about Farrell. He played about 500 games in the big leagues, and he wasn't great. But that wasn't what makes this a quintessential Hornsby story. What makes this a Hornsby story is that Doc Farrell was sitting right there at the same table with Hornsby when he made the comment. And it's because of cracks like those that Hall of Fame historian Lee Allen said of Hornsby, he was frank to the point of being cruel and subtle as a belch. John B. Sheridan said he was deficient in the social relation.
Even more terse, Bill James called him the biggest horse's ass in baseball's history. I think of those three descriptions, though, Sheridan's was the closest to the probable truth, deficient in the social relation. I hope you'll forgive me if I venture an opinion that I am not at all qualified to make, particularly about someone who's been dead since the 1960s and obviously I never met, but I wonder if Hornsby was autistic in some sense. He tended to just shut off if he wasn't involved with baseball. He loved the game so much so he played as long as he could, and then he managed both in the majors and the minors. It's not because he loved managing. It's not because he loved coaching. It was because it was the way that he could stay in the game even though he was past playing age. He had zero affinity for it, although I should clarify that comment in this one sense. He loved teaching baseball not to his players, ironically, but to children. He wasn't a great dad insofar as I know. Well, I know he wasn't. But the one really positive thing that you can say about Hornsby's life is he was constantly running baseball clinics for children. He said he really liked doing that. That's not to say that he was even then ever for a second warm. And you can read comments by kids who attended those clinics that he could be rough even with children who were just learning the game. And I'm not at all sure that there were no, I don't know, 10-year-olds whose confidence was shattered because Hornsby told him he was, well, even worse than Doc Farrell. You can imagine somebody walking up and saying, Will Skippy's Little League team win it this year? Not with Skippy playing shortstop, pudgy little bastards got hands of stone. Those clinics aside, Hornsby had baseball and he had betting on horses, but he didn't have people. He was married three times, and it's impossible to imagine what those courtships were like, how this guy, who was a robot when he wasn't playing baseball, or possibly if you pushed him, a robot who dispenses nothing but negativity would convince a woman to spend her life with him. Never mind a woman, a man, a cat, a goldfish. This is a whole other topic, but I have this theory about some relationships anyway, that what really goes on in them is not so much that the other person makes you feel good, but that the other person allows you to displace your own need to feel good upon them. I'm not saying that's a universal thing. I think other people do sometimes legitimately make you feel good, but I think in some instances it's not really reciprocal, and what you're looking at is not really another person, but you're looking in a mirror and telling yourself how good you feel to be with another person who you can't even see because they're behind your own reflection. And that is the only condition I can imagine under which someone, self-hypnosis basically, would agree to marry Rogers Hornsby. So we have this guy, he's kind of like Marvin the Depressed Robot from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series, except he's Marvin the Negative Robot. And in addition, in one of his divorces, his wife said he was a hitter, not the 358 kind, but the repugnant other kind. And then there was another woman who he did not marry but was involved with for a long time who committed suicide by throwing herself out of a high window. And to be fair, she could have done that for any number of reasons, having nothing at all to do with Rogers. But I would find it very easy to believe that she despaired of living just from trying to talk to the guy and failing. In the off-season, the robot was off. 
In every book of baseball quotations, you see this line from Hornsby. People ask me what I do in winter when there's no baseball. I'll tell you what I do. I stare out the window and wait for spring. He wasn't being poetical. He wasn't joking. Rogers Hornsby did not tell jokes, was not capable. He also didn't read, didn't smoke, didn't drink, didn't go to the movies, famously because he thought they would ruin his batting eye. And maybe at the time he conceived of that posture, he was right. But as one of his players said late in his managerial career, Oh, come on, Raj, they don't flicker anymore. And when television came along, he didn't watch that either. Aside from his gambling addiction involving the ponies, which cost him dearly in a lot of ways, what he really liked to do was, when his teams were on the road and possibly when they were at home, he liked to just go sit in the hotel lobby, which was a thing back in the day, to be fair, but he would sit there and just not talk to anyone. Now, if you saw him in that lobby and walked up to him and said, Mr. Hornsby, how do you hit the curveball? You, you could be a total stranger. He'd talk to you for hours on that topic. But if at the end of those hours, if you'd exhausted that subject and you said, say, Mr. Hornsby, what do you think the chances are of peace in the Middle East? Or do you think it's going to rain today? Or even chicken or fish? He just shut down. He had zero interest. It was outside the boundaries of his imagination. And by shutting down, I don't mean that he would change the subject or say, I don't know, or how about I tell you how to hit the change up instead of the curveball. He'd just get up and leave or cease speaking. And that's why when his mother died during the 1926 World Series, I've talked about this before on the show, he skipped the funeral. And the Cardinals owner at the time decided he was a monster because who does that? He might have been in some ways, or maybe also it was just that he was, as a matter of biology, psychology, or both, closed off to the whole spectrum of human emotion outside of playing the game. He had access to the stimulation and the satisfaction that baseball brought him. That was his whole rainbow. The rest of the spectrum, possibly including grief and mother love, to him was drab, gray, not really very compelling. The stranger thing even than that was that he tried to make the world equally drab for his players. He just didn't understand that most people, even the Ted Williamses of the world, they needed more than that. Once you were in a Hornsby clubhouse, you had to be like him. You couldn't play cards or talk or anything. Hack Wilson, who played for Hornsby with the Cubs and floundered badly under him, said, you couldn't read a paper or smoke a cigarette. You came in and sat like a monkey on your chair and got dressed. No laughing or playing around. He ran the club like a Sunday school. Now, if you know anything about Hack, you might be tempted to say, well, maybe he could have used a little Sunday school. And that's probably true in one sense. But in another, it was wholly the wrong approach. It didn't calm him down at all, but made him resentful and ultimately had the opposite effect managing people in any sense in a business if you're a school teacher if you are a baseball manager requires nuance and the understanding that you have to adjust your approach to motivation to discipline 
to the individual or it won't work. You can't have a one-size-fits-all philosophy. And not only that, but the same person might require a different approach at different times. And that's what I mean when I say Hornsby had no affinity for managing because he had seemingly no affinity for human emotion. And he never learned. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about his 1932 Cubs or his 1952 Reds. He didn't want his players talking to the opposition. He didn't want his players talking to each other. And he didn't want to talk to them either. One aspect of his managing that drove his players nuts, and this is just a minor symptom of all of the above, was that he wouldn't go out to the mound to pull a pitcher from the game. He'd just wave at them from the dugout. He had his reasons, but they don't matter much because whatever he intended to achieve for himself, the effect was to alienate the people he needed to like him. That's why the story that when he was managing the Reds, he expressed his displeasure with a pitcher who had had a bad game by heading into the shower and peeing on his leg has had such traction. It's almost certainly not true, but it was believable because of who Hornsby was. One thing that is true is that if he pulled you from the game because you were getting shelled, you, the pitcher, were not allowed to go back to the clubhouse, shower, and put on a clean shirt before returning to the dugout. You had to sit there and stew in your own sweat without leaving for a moment. Compared to him, Ty Cobb was a highly socialized, urbane individual and one other thing about Cobb, he got into some fights in his life that had a racial component to them. A few of them have been debunked. A few of them are ambiguous because Cobb at no time ever came out and said, I beat that guy up. I beat that black guy up because he was a black guy. We can just make the inference based on the circumstances in which those fights occurred. At the same time, he was an equal opportunity bully, and he got into plenty of fights with white people who offended his sense of dignity as well. It's not just that he felt that black people should be in their place. He felt everyone should be in their place where he was concerned. So it's not a sure thing. And when integration came along, I'm not trying to make him out to be a member of the NAACP or anything, but he didn't express any opposition. In fact, he said that all Americans, African Americans, have the right to play the game. Why shouldn't they? Hornsby, though, as soon as Jackie Robinson was signed by the Dodgers organization, expressed skepticism. Negro ball players and white ball players will never get along, he said in 1945. It's socially impossible for them to do so. Negro players should stay in their own leagues. I'm sure they will be happier there. And not only that, but I don't think there are any good enough to make the majors. And Cobb of Georgia never joined the Ku Klux Klan. Hornsby of Texas almost certainly did. Having said all that, there is this one sense in which I can feel empathy for Rogers Hornsby just a tiny bit. He managed the St. Louis Browns from 1933 through 1937, and he lost that job in part because of some of the issues I've been talking about, and in part because of his gambling. The owner who had hired him and had apparently been able to deal with the fact that his manager spent all his spare time throwing bucks away on horses. And in fact, and this is awkward, 
would borrow money from his players to bet on the horses. It was a crisis when Hornsby was fired by the Cubs because he left town in debt to his whole roster. Well, the new ownership of the Browns wasn't about to put up with that kind of thing. They were probably less supportive of him to start with because no one could make a first impression like Rogers Hornsby, and so they let him go. None of those Browns teams were very good either. They weren't as bad as the Browns could get, but they were all second division teams. The best of them went 67 and 85 in 1934, which was the same year the Cardinals, their tenants at Sportsman's Park, won the World Series. Not a good look. When that Brown stint was over, he was shut out from the major leagues. Given he was a manager who, as we've been saying, didn't like people, it would have been a quixotic thing to hire him for other than the publicity value, and even that might not have been worthwhile. So it's not totally surprising. It's also possible that Judge Landis froze him out over his compulsive gambling. They did have an argument about that. Landis told him to cut it out, and Hornsby said no. So from 1938 through 1942, he bounced around the miners from Chattanooga to Baltimore to Oklahoma City, Fort Worth to Veracruz in the momentarily energized Mexican League. But from 1944 through 1949, he couldn't get a job in baseball, period. Something finally broke his way in 1950 when the Yankees-affiliated Beaumont Roughnecks of the Texas League hired him to manage. That team won 91 games and earned him a ticket to the Seattle Rangers of the Pacific Coast League, back to the highest level of the minors. This time, he won the league championship and thereby rejuvenated himself as a managerial prospect. That proved to be wishful thinking, though. He was still about the worst choice to manage a team for all the reasons that we've talked about. But Bill Veck, who was always publicity-minded, but generally smarter than this, had bought the Browns and wanted a St. Louis hero in the dugout. Hornsby had had three bona fide offers, one of them potentially from the Cardinals, who also weren't doing so well at this time, and he opted for... Vec, even though it was Vec's late dad who had fired him from the Cubs back in the day. But all right, different guy, different city. So Vec and Hornsby shook hands on a three-year deal starting with the 1952 season. They didn't even make it through half of the first year. But that's not why I feel sorry for Hornsby either. It's this. Vec was a showman. He had already done the Eddie Goodell thing, the midget batting in a Major League Baseball game. Now Vec wanted to win as well. And he did, including the most recent championship in Cleveland Indians history in 1948. Hornsby wanted to win, too, even though the 1926 World Series notwithstanding, he had no idea how to go about it. Vec was also a good-time guy with a lot of humor, and Hornsby was humorless. At least they realized this incompatibility at the outset. So Hornsby got Vec to make him a promise. He made said promise publicly on day one of their relationship. Hornsby said, There will be no clowns, no midgets, no gimmicks, but good baseball. I take my baseball seriously, and if my club is getting beat, I don't want anybody laughing at some clown. He also said, I won't let any team I manage finish last. I never have, and after 25 years, it's too late to start now. I'd hate to see anybody try it. Why? because I'd make myself just plain unbearable. They'd either have to shoot me, or I'd probably shoot them. He was honest, at least. Vec 
agreed with Hornsby's no-comedy posture, saying, This is the dawn of a new era in Brown's history. Except, well, either he was lying or someone didn't get the message, and that is why I can bring myself to feel sorry for Rogers Hornsby. Day one of spring training, 1952. Hornsby is running his players through some drills. Tommy Byrne, Sugar Kane, Stubby Overmeyer, Satchel Page, and the rest. When? I'll let Hornsby tell it. This is how he put it in his autobiography, My War with Baseball. When Vec hired me to manage the St. Louis Browns in 1952, I laid the cards on the table. I told him I wouldn't permit any circus acrobats coaching at first or third base, no midgets batting like he had the year before, no sideshows in the middle of the diamond. I also told him he wasn't going to tell me how to run my personal life. I told him he wasn't going to tell me how to manage the team. I told him I was shooting for the first division. We agreed on everything. We opened spring training in El Centro, California, and about the first thing I saw was two carloads of those little old midgets driving up and running out on the field where we were trying to get in shape to play Major League Baseball. Those midgets would really help us beat the Yankees, wouldn't they? My message was simple and loud. Get the hell out of here and don't come back. We don't want that kind of stuff around here. One of those little old midgets just stared at me. So I picked him up by the seat of the pants and collar and threw him over the railing. I wasn't going to put up with that nonsense. We didn't have any more midgets around after that, but of course I didn't stay for all three years. Imagine you had once stood at the pinnacle of your profession. You've won seven batting titles, or whatever the equivalent in your field is, two MVP awards, and a World Series. You've been in the Hall of Fame for 10 years. You're 56 years old, and at this stage of your life, the world should be showing you some respect, a lot of respect. But no, the opposite, in fact. You're Rogers Hornsby. You're the greatest right-handed hitter who ever lived. You're standing under the hot desert sun of the Imperial Valley, and you are, despite your best most determined efforts to maintain your dignity being watched by your players as you chase midgets around the baseball diamond. Back in the first segment, I quoted, or rather Casey Stengel sort of quoted, the famous line, the paths of glory lead but to the grave. Sometimes, though, if you're unlucky, they lead to the not-very-private hell where Rogers Hornsby found himself standing that day. Not standing, running. All right, as usual, here we will take a break. We will pause for reflection, for refreshment, for moral uplift in some way. I don't know. I leave it to you, really. You could pause for moral degeneracy, I suppose. And when we return, we will be joined by a man who is so far from being a moral degenerate, but the opposite the wise, the saintly David Roth. I'll see you then. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act... 
that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Every day we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. My next guest is a writer and editor at Deadspin, a co-host of the Deadcast podcast and of the video series, Let's Remember Some Guys, except for a few episodes he's not on, which I and all other connoisseurs of the series regard as non-canonical. He's a regular <laughs> member of the Infinite Inning Rotation. His beard consistently maintains a Yasir Arafat-like three days of growth, but he's a far more benign personage. He's David Roth. How are you, David? I'm good, man. Did you know that Yasser Arafat was born on the same day as me? No, we'll see. It must be something that was in the air at that time. I think there's even a Doonesbury strip on this where like Yasser Arafat was having a major press conference about peace in the Middle East. And all anyone wanted to ask him was, how do you keep your beard at that length? (laughs) It's amazing, too, given that the guy was living in just rubble for like decades. and He always came out shining. (laughs) That's what everybody remembers about him. The glow up. Nobody had home beard trimmers in like 1980. And like, oh, yeah, not in caves. Right. Fucking Israel probably were like, oh, those are weapons of war. Can't have those. It's like pasta. You know what they use it for. (laughs) But yeah, I was born on the same day as Yasser Arafat, Michael Jordan, and Paris Hilton. Three of my biggest influences. I'm two days off from Walt Disney and four days off from Pearl Harbor. I can't really claim anything better than that. Just That's fine. Landing on either of those would have been a lot of pressure, you know, because then you're you're supposed to live up to a big splash either way. An anti-Semitic, super conservative, creative genius animator and one of the great military disasters in U.S. history. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot of pressure. Whereas Michael Jordan, it's just, you know, a basketball <laughs> player, right? Probably one of the 10 or 20 best basketball players of his era. Just 10 or 20. Yeah, I don't want to, you know, whatever. I don't really follow the sport very closely. He can't handle the pressure anyway. (laughs) There's nothing he can do about it now anyway. I finally showed my parents some of the Let's Remember Some Guys videos when we were at the shore last week on vacation. And I tried to start with the ones that I thought that they would, I don't know, find the least concerning, uh, which is to say the ones that had like older Jewish guys that knew a lot about baseball on them. Right. We just got some up that we had filmed months ago in Los Angeles with a guy who has a historically significant collection of Jewish baseball player cards. And postage stamps. And postage stamps. Yeah. So Dr. Seabor Stoll, a true king, invited us into his home and showed us these cards. There was something about it. Obviously, I, I was extremely in my element just for being around baseball cards and stupid shit that nobody else cares about. The two things that have guided my career like no other. You and me both. (laughs) Well, yeah, I was going to say, that's why I thought of you with this. Something about seeing that little, and I don't know if you have this too as a member of the team, as I like to call it. I don't like tribe, it sounds... Tribal. Exclusive. Yeah, (laughs) right. (laughs) But there's always a part of me that like, I'd like to know if there are Jewish baseball players active in the majors. And seeing a guy who has not only taken that weird and kind of embarrassing tick, and then just like absolutely built something important and significant out of that 
distinctly weird Jewish baseball nerd neurosis. There was something kind of inspiring about it. Doesn't make me want to start collecting Jewish baseball cards, but I was like, maybe just a nice reminder that you can take the things that you do because you're stupid and maybe redeem them with a few decades of hard work. So just for people who haven't seen it, first of all, this just amazes me in this abstemious, it's not even the right word, cheap media era. You got flown, I presume, by Deadspin at their expense to Beverly Hills, California, going to hang out with Mr. Drysdale and Dr. Stoll, his collection of baseball, Hebraic esoterica. And well, what... it was part of another thing. This was like a bolt on to a different assignment. Okay. Fair. fair but a friend, a friend of mine who's a, a curator, a museum curator, had worked with him in that collection. And so it was like, you know, it was a matter of Uber ride plus a few hours of our time. But yes, I feel the same way. It is <laughs> ridiculous. It was when we were still owned by Univision and it was one of those deals where there was like a travel, like a use it or lose it travel budget. So we basically got ourselves out there for real reasons like i mean the the stuff that we did but it was also like none of us were gonna not go to los angeles if we had the option of going (laughs) to los angeles right so you shot three episodes they're about four four and a half minutes each with dr salters and what's really uh stole stole i'm sorry i you know what i was thinking of anyway i will we'll get back to that Who were you thinking of? I, I think I was I was thinking of a Jewish ball player. Actually, it's all colliding okay. in, in my disease riddled brain. But <laughs> what was really cool about this, again, for those who hadn't seen, it's not just that he's a fan of Jewish baseball players. He's not just sitting there going Hank Greenberg, cool, which was a cliche even when Hank Greenberg was playing. Mm. There's a Philip Roth short story about this. The Jews are completely downtrodden, and there's the Holocaust, and people are anti-Semitic. But Hank Greenberg, we're gonna hang everything on that. But he has tobacco cards, the same tobacco cards that Hans Wagner was famously on. These have Jewish stars. He has Hollywood stars players. That's the Pacific Coast League team who got baseball cards and didn't necessarily make the major leagues matchbooks. I mean, there are real antiquities in this gentleman's collection. They just happen to feature the Jewish stars of various periods. Yeah, that's what I think I found most beguiling about it because, you know, I know a little bit about Jews who played baseball and I know a little bit about baseball cards, but there's so much more to actually know. And we were there for 80 minutes talking for the entire time. Like, I think they probably could have cut another (laughs) five videos if they wanted to. But at some point, you got to remember that people are supposed to enjoy watching what you're putting out. (laughs) People that aren't just you. It functions as kind of like a guided tour of the history of baseball cards. Imagine an impenetrable wall of information that you would have to in some way get over. And then this man has opened a small crack that's in the shape somehow of a Star of David. And you look (laughs) through it... (laughs) And you can see everything, but only through that little lens. So there's a card. He had a card that was not, it wasn't even really a card. It was a a tintype. It was like an early photo from 1867 of a guy who happened to be a Major League Baseball player who was like, you know, a good player for his era, which is to say like he was playing baseball professionally while fucking Abraham Lincoln was president (laughs) of the United States. So He was kind of lonely. He was the only one. Right. I was going to say like, you know, a lot of the track man (laughs) stats were not the catching metric were not what we would consider state-of-the-art today. (laughs) It was cool to me just as somebody that likes to learn about things that I don't know. This was like a good way of sort of getting that baseball history into my mind without me pushing back against feeling like I have to take my medicine. First of all, just to correct myself, I was thinking of Mose Solomon, Mose Hirsch Solomon, Mm -hmm. otherwise known as the rabbi of SWAT. His complete career line is two games, eight at-bats, three hits. So he hit 375 for what that's worth. 
He was with the Giants. The Giants in the 20s, being a New York team, were really obsessed with getting a Jewish star because they thought they could really pack in the crowds, the local Jewish population, which was, of course, very large at that time and still is. And they never quite did it. He wasn't the only one they tried. They tried a second baseman named Andy. I'm sure that the doctor told you all this. Andy Cohen? Andy Cohen, yes. Andy Cohen, but had a better career. Yeah, that was a guy that I was, before there was even baseball reference, there was like like a baseball simulator thing where you could like make your own teams and have them play against other teams. Sure. My friends and I would make those and have them like sort of simulate them against each other and then like write each other little gamers. This is like before where the internet was fun and also barely existed. <laughs> it's like 2002. You can imagine how cool not just I, but all of my friends were at that time that we were doing this. It's kind of a stretch to field a proper team of people with obviously Jewish last names. So Andy Cohen was a mainstay of those teams, as was Cal Abrams, who is the Brooklyn Dodgers answer to what you're talking about in terms of there being a marquee attraction in the form of like a nice Jewish guy who could play against lefties. <laughs> he made one of the more famous outs in Dodgers history. It was a play at the plate. I just talked about this on the show a couple of weeks back in 1950. He was trying to score the tying run in a game against the Phillies at the very end of the season that would have pushed them into a playoff. But Richie Ashburn threw him out of the plate, and that was the end of it. They went off to the World Series to be swept by the Yankees. That's tragic. I hope he went on to enjoy the rest of his years not haunted by that sort of thing. He probably pressed pants, as we all do, or at least we all <laughs> used to. That's why we only have Hank Greenberg or Brad Osmus, Sean Green. <laughs> Scott Schoenweiss keeping a proud legacy alive. Exactly. One thing that I, and this is something I would find more charming about the Mets if I were not somebody that had made the decision years ago to peg some amount of my well-being to the Mets' success. The Wilpons also like to have a Jewish guy around. I really believe that. And I find it endearing. It's just like, it doesn't always help. I always wonder if you happen to be hanging out with Fred Wilpon, you could be discussing any topic how long into the conversation would it be before he name dropped Sandy Koufax? It would. I think it's not a, a question of you could start talking about the weather and you'd be talking about Sandy Koufax inside of five minutes. <laughs> it's incredible. Who I went to high school with, by the way. <laughs> he seems like a, a dope. I think his son seems like the the actual guy that's kind of a bad guy. Whereas like Fred Wilpon just seems like. I mean, you have an older Jewish parent, as do I. Like, there's a type of guy that you know where they're just sort of like and and i don't mind it there's worse ways to be like they don't want to talk to you about taxes or the pc police or whatever they just want to talk to you about baseball players they know and or baseball things they remember and i'd way rather do that than find out what somebody thinks about the estate tax my dad is the type of older guy who hangs on to every baseball related memory of his youth like that's the last thing that he'll lose is like the memory of Carl Ferrillo throwing him a ball and then him <laughs> dropping it and then another boy picking it up and running away horrible yeah I mean that would haunt me too to be fair you can't redo those experiences yeah your dad could go on eBay or to some trading card show or baseball memorabilia show I should say and buy a Carl Ferrillo signed ball I'm sure they're out there even though he hasn't been around for a while. $20 or something, but it's not the same. Right, exactly. There are conversations with famous people I wish I had that maybe I even met them very briefly or I got something signed by them in person, but it's not the same thing as having an intimacy with them and they're gone now and you can never do anything about that. 
another part of what baseball is as like more than an actual game. I mean, it's like sort of like a marker of time and a way to sort of like be a mile marker for different experiences. But that one especially is like just a real tough one. As, as he's told the story, and again, you know, my parents, it's with every parent, this is the case. You tell a story enough times and eventually it starts to assume the shape that you want it to assume, right. whatever it looked like in the moment. But as he tells it, it was the Dodgers were playing an exhibition game in Jersey City where he grew up at Roosevelt Field, which is now a mall. And (laughs) it was too perfect a 50s baseball thing to actually be real, but this is the only version of it I know was him saying Carl Furlow's nickname was Scooge because he apparently liked Scoongeely. He was a cuttlefish guy. At least one of them on this podcast. I don't know how you feel about the thinking man's octopus. I quite like it, but I've got to say like that was a whole New York thing in terms of Little Italy and places like that in New York going back to the turn of the 20th century. There weren't chains. There wasn't like McScoonges. Yeah, right. It was just a very popular thing you could find all over the city in Italian restaurants. And it's gone out of style to a certain extent, at least in that kind of cuisine. But back then, that wasn't weird at all. It wasn't weird. It was like, I mean, it's an amazing nickname, too. I mean, just as like, it's a very pleasing sound to the ear. So my dad calls out, hey, Scoonge. And Ferrello sees him and is like, here you go, kid. And like throws him a ball. And then he just absolutely boxes it. And another kid runs away with it. As I tell the story now, it's clear to me that some percentage of it, it's a two-digit number, is completely false or it was added for effect, but I don't know what that was. But if that's how he remembers it, I can definitely see why it has stuck with him the way that it has. We are jumping all over the place here. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, we also decided to make this a Jews-only podcast. Let's just talk about something else. Yeah, we will. One thing, though, I want to say, as I was watching you with the doctor and you guys were talking about Barney Pelty, the Yiddish curver, which is also a great nickname. It's talking about pleasing to the ear. Ooh, sounds so sweet. It's either a pitcher or a serial killer. I'm not sure which. <laughs> he was a Republican. After his career, he was active in Republican politics until he Mm. left us. And again, we shouldn't hold Republicans of yesterday by the standards of Republicans of today because they probably hit us. But still, it it (laughs) took something away from me anyway. That really takes a lot away from me. I mean, it's just tough to think that after all that he accomplished as a Yiddish curver in a world (laughs) that didn't want him. Shonda Barney turned around and oppressed other people. Isn't that always the way we go from underdogs to overdogs? Yeah, it's a mess. All right. So you brought up the Mets. As you said, you were on vacation and the Mets were peaking as you were away. And I was watching these games with the kind of rapt fascination that I have not accorded Mets games in quite a long time. And all I could think about was, Is David watching? Does he know this is happening? Is he enjoying this as much as I am? (laughs) I appreciate you thinking of me. I was, and I probably was. And it all felt (laughs) unreal, but also in a way that was identifiable to me and then also linked to this particular place that my family rents at the Jersey Shore for a week every year. It was where we were in 2015. It was the same TV and it was the same kind of feeling just in the sense that especially that game where came back and won Luis Guillorme hit a homer right. to tie the game. That to me felt like the game where Wilmer Flores was crying because he thought he was traded. I saw that there. As a Mets fan, I was going to say longtime listeners will be familiar with this, but as a Mets fan pretty much does the work, <laughs> you don't expect good things to happen. Some of it is a tick and some of it is probably overstated, but also like some of it is not and some of it is just that the team routinely makes big errors, repeats those errors every year, and then just sort of like wonders why they happened and tries to find someone to blame for the fact that they happened. 
And yet in 2015, it didn't matter because that's a thing that happens in baseball sometimes, you know, that everything just goes right. This doesn't quite feel that way because that 2015 team was fine and good until they got great. And this team was big ass, like just <laughs> terrible. I mean, they were 10 games under 500 when they started this run. 10 games under 500 at the All-Star break and then eight games under when the run really started in earnest. And yet... It felt the same. The thing I've been working on with the Mets, you don't want to use the term self-care because that's usually <laughs> a thing that like Instagram people say when they're like, I'm not going to work today. Self-care. I still have to go to work. And obviously, if I was serious about self-care, I'd just fucking stop being a Mets fan. But I've been trying to isolate the parts of it that I like and keep those away from the parts that make me upset. And so in this case, I was trying to just enjoy the moment, enjoy the fact that the players I like were playing so well. It worked for a while. I mean, I don't think that by any means it's over, but I also don't think that they're going to win 15 out of 16, whatever that winning percentage is. Probably not sustainable the rest of the way. I mean, going back to the start of July, they're 23 and 11 as we're talking. They're going to basically need to win. And this was the case coming out of the All-Star break, that they would need to win two out of every three games between there and the end of the season and also see some other teams take a dip. It was one of the weird manifestations of the trade deadline, which again, you know, is this sort of weird new normal that we're all trying to figure out in baseball. The Mets actually like bought as aggressively as any team except for the Astros. And that's because they made one trade. No team really punted the way that I thought they would at the trade deadline. Right. I had this idea that the Diamondbacks would be a game out of the wild card and then just like get rid of everybody because it's clear that they've been like trying to do a rebuild for five years and they keep being competitive and good and getting annoyed about it. <laughs> and yet like even they, you know, they traded Zach Granke, sure, but then they got Mike Leak. No team really bailed. And so it seemed like every other team was doing something like what the Mets do. Everything except for the Astros, of course, which is basically like giving yourself a chance to have a chance and then expecting everyone to be okay with that being enough. But if owners aren't going to be accountable, then maybe that is what we're all going to get used to. Everybody's a Mets fan now. You know, if it bought us a couple of weeks of that, and by us, I'm agnostic when it comes to the Mets and most- Oh, right. Of course. Every but... other every other team. But- for this period of time, I absolutely have been a Mets fan. And again, not because I suddenly have turned my back on how I felt about teams in general for a long time that I'm more a fan at this stage of my life of baseball than a particular team, but because it was joyful and it was infectious. And after seeing that team so run down for so many years to see the ballpark, if not sold out pretty damn full and to see the excitement in the stands and on the field, Dominic Smith being a cheerleader. I mean, this is... With his scooter. Yeah, with the scooter, which is... I hope the Hall of Fame calls for the scooter once he's done with it. Yeah, I do too. I mean, they probably have to win something for that to work, but <laughs> it, is, it is iconic. I love it. He's the tiny Tim of the Mets Christmas story. <laughs> but, I mean, it was great. I hope that the Wilpons, whatever the hell has been going on with them financially, going way back to the Ponzi scheme and everything else... I mean, this is what can happen when you really try. And it happened kind of in spite of them and in spite of Brody Van Wagen and whatever, but it's great. Yeah. I mean, this is one of the, the things about the Wilpons that's, it's not endearing, but it is one of the less not endearing things. I don't, it's too many negatives, but you understand what I'm saying. <laughs> it's like, there are things about them that are repellent. They bully their players. They make them play through injuries. They complain constantly. They bury guys when they leave town. All of those things suck. They're petty guys. They're not, at least in terms of how they treat the people that work for them. But they do always want to win. And the reason that Brody got this job over the other manifestly more qualified candidates that were finalists is that he was the one that didn't want to rebuild. He told them that we could compete this year. I'll make enough moves without 
obviously without adding to payroll because the Wilpons, and again, you'd have to have Howard Magdal on and ask him. He's the guy that knows (laughs) just how cash strapped they actually are, but they don't have enough money to really run a, a big market payroll. They tried that and everything that Brody did went wrong, except for trading for JD Davis, I guess. And it still worked because the players that they developed and that they tried to bury are that good. And eventually, I mean, like usually if they think that they have a chance to win, like the Wilpons want to win a World Series. They just want to win it their way. They want the things that they want to suddenly start working. And that's always been the plan. It's not a very good plan, but it will not change for as long as they're in charge of things. It can work for a little while. Like in 2015, it worked. 2016, it might have worked if everyone had been healthy. And then it went right back to being what it's been for most of the time that they've been there, which is them being a 77 to 81 win team that generally is not playing what Jeff used to call meaningful games in September. (laughs) I don't know where they're going to go from here, but the rotation is very good. The young players that they have that are good are very good. And the fact that Edwin Diaz has some sort of hex on him (laughs) and the fact that they're paying Robinson Cano $80 million for the next four years of his life, like that's all he's 40. Oh, boy. My irrational exuberance with this little run that they've been on was so great that I was tempted to reevaluate Van Wagenen's moves and to the extent he was you can't. responsible for Pete Alonso making the opening day roster, that was a huge thing. J.D. Davis isn't bad, but you just keep coming back to trading five players to the Mariners, two of which were top prospects for a team that doesn't have a ton of top prospects. And then you get Robinson Cano at $24 million a pop until he's 40 years old and whatever the hell happened to Edwin Diaz. Maybe the stat is unfair, but I keep thinking about this, that in 1986, the future Hall of Fame pitcher Burt Blylevin astounded baseball by allowing 50 home runs personally in a single season. Big curveball guy. He was in the Metrodome when the air conditioning was blowing out. Curveball sometimes hung. People hit it out. He allowed 1.7 home runs per nine innings pitched. Diaz has allowed 2.2 per nine. It's unreal. And I've read enough stuff on this. I mean, I wrote a blog post about it. This was I remember I vividly remember writing that post about it because it was supposed to be the first day of our vacation in Maine. And Kate was working. She had like a busy day. She was like basically on a phone call. And I'm sitting in a hotel room in Portland, looking out a window, watching boats move around in a harbor under a cloudless blue sky, writing about what the hell is the matter with Edwin Diaz in a hotel room. <laughs> I'll always have that moment. Mike Petriello wrote a typically thorough and intelligent analysis of it. And he was basically like, yeah, he's been a little unlucky. Yes. Also, he's giving up much harder contract. I sort of expected from having read that, I found it sort of soothing to know that it wasn't like you watch him he's as filthy as any pitcher his command and control are are not neither of them is good but neither of them was great last year either I mean he still throws the ball 100 miles an hour everything moves there's no reason why it should be happening like this and yet just gives up lasers I don't know if he's tipping pitches or whatever it is I mean the, the thing with the Mets is that they don't have the wherewithal to fix him because they don't have an analytics department they don't have an analytical bent Their pitching coach is 83 years old. And he's a perfectly qualified guy, but it's not state-of-the-art thinking at any level. I was surprised that they didn't trade him at the deadline, honestly, because I feel like the Wilpons probably, just knowing the way that they are with stuff like this and knowing how fixated they are on this like occult tabloid idea that like New York breaks people, I think that they think that Diaz will never do it. And I wouldn't be surprised if they tried to trade him this offseason. I think if they didn't, the only real reason would be that he's going to be making like $800,000 next year. The problem with trading him, at least this year, was, and we saw this in some of these recent games with the Nationals, they go to the bullpen, Seth Lugo comes out, and then... 
Yeah. And it's very Mets to have that be. There's like one guy. They've done this with players before Terry Collins, even. Terry infamously pitched guys into the ground, you know, and by the end was doing it by like May or June. <laughs> Lugo, I mean, I think they sort of tried to break Lugo and they haven't. He's been great. But there's always one guy that they use like that. And then the rest of it is. The other transaction, I guess you can say that Brody got right. Justin Wilson was hurt for much of the year, but really has pitched very well as a left-hander out of the bullpen, which they haven't had a good left-handed relief pitcher since Billy Wagner. Like, I don't know like when if this was like ever a strong suit there. They've tried and they paid guys and it's always been randomly it, picking an affordable dude out of a hat. It's Tug McGraw, Jesse Orozco, and Justin Wilson. That's the whole list. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, the one thing about that series was, as as we were saying, like Seth Lugo, Justin Wilson, and then like, please don't bring on Luis Avalon. Please don't bring on Drew Gagnon or Tyler, the Sept of Bachelor or any of those things. I mean, it's a thin team, but I don't think that's the point. The point is just they came to life for a bit and it was an unexpected cool breeze in what has otherwise been a stifling summer. This is the fun thing about baseball that every baseball fan knows. You can't rule it out. They're not that good. It doesn't matter. The Rockies went to the World Series and they were worse. The 2015 Mets were a really good team for three extremely well-timed months. And that was it. Their true level was more like what they looked like in 2016, which was a wild card team that got beat by Madison Bumgarner. They're not built in a sustainable way because the owners do not have that in mind. They don't understand what it would look like or want to make the commitments that it would involve. And yet this is the Mets thing. Like they gave themselves a chance to have a chance. If you get that rotation into a series, they're good. They can't play defense at all. No, They have no depth still in the bullpen. And all of this goes back to classic Mets shit. Guys get hurt and they rush them back. They miss too long. And, you know, that's why Justin Wilson didn't play for multiple months in the season. It was just like they keep bringing guys back before they're ready. That's a Jeff Wilpon thing. It's documented. And then the other stuff, I mean, in terms of like you mentioned Tyler Bachelor, who's probably of the many up and down arms that they have. He's the one that I've watched where I think he can look like a major leaguer for a few minutes at a time. Every team should be able to develop a back-end relief arm. Basically, it's what happens to your starting pitching prospects when they don't work out. Right. The Mets have not been able to do it. And when they sold off the 2015-2016 team in 2017 at the deadline, it was, again, it was typical Wilpon shit and that they wouldn't pay anybody's salary. And the guys they got back were guys that were not dudes that had higher ceilings but were lower down in the system. They got back a lot of double-A AA and triple-A relievers. And none of those guys were good. None of them have worked out. They've made it to the majors and like that's good for them. And like Jacob Rehm is like a guy that I'm pulling for because he seems like a decent dude and everything. But all that short-sightedness compounds over a course of years. And it's really hard to see in the moment from one day to the next who wins a trade or loses a trade. Obviously, if you're sending away a usable player to a contending team and they send you back a bunch of minor leaguers, they're probably winning it. But these things have a way of working out if you do them right. And the Mets just routinely do not do them right. Well, what do you know? He smiled at me in my dreams last night. My dreams are getting better all the time. And what do you know? He smiled at me in a different light. My dreams are getting better all the time. My Dreams Are Getting Better All the Time was introduced by Marion Hutton, sister of the more famous actress and singer Betty Hutton, in the 1945 Abbott and Costello picture 
in society. This version is the young Doris Day, recently deceased as of this year, and Les Brown and his band of renown. They had a number one hit with this cover. It spent seven weeks in that slot in the spring of 45. So we have two baseball connections here at the least. Les Brown and his band of renown is the orchestra that later recorded Jolton Joe DiMaggio, one of the best baseball songs in my opinion, and the movie from which it derives starred the guys who did Who's on First, What's on Second, I Don't Know's on Third, so on and so forth. The lyrics were by Man Curtis, probably best remembered today for a song Frank Sinatra rendered in big, brassy style, I'm Gonna Live Till I Die, There's a Cherry Thought. And the music was by Vic Mazzi, who wrote a couple of classic television themes, That to Green Acres and The Addams Family, which he also sang. And on that note, here comes Lurch to let me know that Gomez and Morticia want a word with me. And if I survive that, I'll be back after this break to continue my conversation with Dandy David Roth. Hang in there, please. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, Protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you're ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Isn't it funny, as you said, we know it can happen that teams can suddenly jump up. I mean, a few weeks before the Mets did it, the Giants kind of did it. They also, mm-hmm. and they're keeping that run up a little better anyway, but they're still not going anywhere. It just meant that they didn't yeah. trade Bumgarner. The Giants roster is way worse than the Mets. Yeah. Like, that is amazing that that team is above 500. Yeah, it's the supermarket shelves the day the blizzard is going to hit. Like, everything is gone. Yeah, except for Ryder Jones <laughs> or whoever. Yeah, but right. Right. But it doesn't seem to happen in a good way. Usually the Mariners started this season like 15 and two or something. Mm -hmm. And the Mariners are miserable. Like if not for that start, they would be well on their way to losing 100 games. Whatever their plan was for this year, it hasn't worked out. But we know usually that that's going to happen. There are teams every year that start out hot. And then you just say like, look, it's going to catch up with them. It's a marathon. It's not going to happen. But for the Mets... And you can correct me if I'm getting this wrong. I know you'll remember these teams better than I do. But those Willie Randolph clubs at the beginning of the 2000s, where one year they won 97 games and they went to the seventh game of the championship series, I believe, before losing. But then the next two years, and this is where I need you to clarify for me, they Mm -hmm. were on a pace to win 9,500 games. And then in both years... They just died starting about this time, about August 15th or so. Mm-hmm. They just didn't win another game the rest of the year. I'm being purposely hyperbolic. And No, but they, would, they you're right that the bottom fell out, and it fell out in embarrassing ways. 
that like the things that you remember about those seasons are like somebody getting in a fight with Miguel Olivo or whatever, <laughs> like just garbage, bad baseball. But then also it was exactly as you said, I mean, that it was like they in, in ever more humiliating fashion fell apart. But it was again, the sort of thing where, you know, if you're Fred Wilpon, you can be like, oh, we're snake bit or like, oh, it's Willie Randolph's fault or whatever. There's probably some element of truth in all of that. But again, it's like if you do everything you can to make sure that that's not going to happen, then it will be less likely to happen. Oh, I don't I don't think you can put that on Willie Randolph. I mean, no, you certainly can't. I mean, it's just, but like he was a, he's the manager, so he's going to get fired for it. Right. A stat that a friend told me recently, uh, you can hear a man yelling possibly on the mic, which means I think the Mets scored. That's my neighbor. He's a Mets fan. <laughs> I thought it was a very angry cat. <laughs> no, I hope it was something good. Those teams like, you know, should, because it was the same personnel, you know, from the years before, but they just didn't add in such a way that, so, you know, important innings are being pitched by like Jorge Sosa or Brian Lawrence or something. You know, it's just like guys that are not, the guys that contending teams have so this Mets team may have that with Walker Lockett, but right now at the very least, if everybody's healthy, that rotation is every night they have a chance to win, but that wasn't always the case, even when they had bigger budgets and better teams. By the way, what your neighbor or the cat was <laughs> reacting to was that JD Davis singled on a fly ball to Ender Inciarte. Steven Matt scored. Ahmed Rosario scored. Mets two, Braves one. Wow. The seventh. No wonder he was uh, hooting. <laughs> That's commitment. Yeah. It would be cool if he was also a listener to this podcast and could have that moment. I've had a couple of times where I've gone back here to like do work or just do whatever away from the TV at, when a Mets game appeared lost to me. And he has told me to go back to the TV just by being like oh man. like just like sort of arnold schwarzenegger sounds from the other from the other side of the wall and i'm like well, let's wonder if jeff mcneil did something not to get too personal but it's late at night you're getting intimate with the wife and then the mets rally <laughs> there's a decision an inflection point there that may differ depending on your age i see if you're 25 or 45 it certainly i was gonna say like there's definitely been times where i have made decisions that i wouldn't make now <laughs> with regard to but in which direction? <laughs> I don't know which way that's supposed to go. I think that in the past, it was like, I definitely remember like getting in an argument with her once when the, the New Jersey Nets were in the NBA finals getting fucking washed by the Lakers. And she had come downstairs in my old apartment to say goodnight and like sit with me for a little bit. And the Nets were in the process of getting not really blown out, but it was like a game that had been close, became less close while she was sitting there. And I basically like in the way that only a, truly charming 23 year old could do i was like you know i think you should go upstairs <laughs> and it wasn't the sort of thing like we weren't gonna make out it was a school night but it was at the same time it was the sort of thing where i would never do that now because it's just like some things are, are more important somehow she still married you yeah i was gonna say like that's <laughs> i've been thinking about that a lot recently actually i think that for all of us and you've been married for quite a long time i have every once in a while you think back to those decision moments where you just say Thank goodness the other person was patient and understanding of me. And it could just be something as small as like, no, I don't want to take the trash out now. Just some childish moment that you had that on any other day you wouldn't have. And you think, you know, other people get divorced over this kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think about that all the time, in part because of the fact that, like, I don't think I was like even a, a moderately high functioning individual until <laughs> after we were married. So like in my 30s. 
that's a long time. We were together. We met on September 11th, 2001, and we started dating not long after that. And like, with the exception of a few months in there, like we've been together. Like, I have no idea. Like, I'd have to go back and break down the tape of those like first seven or eight years. But like, they seem inexplicable to me. You met on 9-11. Yeah. I don't think I knew that. I haven't told you that. Weird anniversary every year. There weren't apps, so it wasn't like you had a Tinder date and you're like, yeah, okay, that there's been this massive tragedy, but we'll go anyway. So she was friends from college with a woman who was a coworker of one of my roommates and then had done a study abroad program with another. And I didn't go to the same school as them, but this was just how it had worked out. I lived in sort of a nowhere neighborhood in Brooklyn between Sunset Park and Park Slope, and she had just moved into a, a different part of that neighborhood and didn't have a working TV. And obviously, like, this is a bad day when everybody <laughs> wanted to see how bad it actually was. And I saw her and her friend just out kind of walking aimlessly on Fifth Avenue that evening. And I was going to meet a friend at a bar. It used to be, and you can imagine this part in a Grandpa Simpson voice if you'd like, I used to have to walk a mile to go to a bar that I liked. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was on my way about halfway there and I knew that Gene, Kate's friend knew Dan. So I was like, just go to our place and watch like we're on 21st street. And I didn't have a, a cell phone. Nobody did at that time really, or very few people did. So I was like, just go and ring the bell. Like I know they're home. And then I was like, all right, well, I'm going to go get drunk now. Like nice to meet you. See you later. <laughs> and went off to go about doing that business, which I successfully did. And then I came home and they were still there watching the news. We talked some but like but i remember i thought she was pretty and all that i remember she refilled our brita which was something that neither of my roommates was ever really good at doing so i was like this one might be keeper like you got to keep that in mind and then she like went off on a road trip the next day or two days after that that had been planned and i don't know like her friend mentioned that she was interested and i called her and we wound up starting to see each other some months after that i was completely feral at that point and it's miraculous that it lasted through the period that it lasted through. On September 11th every year, we light a candle and try to like make a point of, of having dinner with each other and stuff. It's a weird thing to celebrate as an anniversary. Well, yeah. I mean, I've, I've talked about the fact that one of my close relatives committed suicide on my birthday when I was 14. And I felt oh, odd about it. And it was just a coincidence. It wasn't planned that way. But it certainly cast a pall for me over my birthday for a long time. It was at a bad age for that to happen, or it was hard for me to put it in perspective. But I think that in every bad day, there are good things that happen too. So earlier I was joking about being born on Pearl Harbor Day, but you know, you didn't contribute to that. You weren't part of it. And so this one small good thing came out of 9-11 and the worst day in American history. And that's something to, to feel really good about that that day, at least for a couple of people, was redeemed and continues to be redeemed to the present day in that sense and will be as long as you guys are together. Yeah, that's how I like to think about it, at least, you know, that there's, you know, nothing is, is all one thing or all the other. Such a, I mean, I remember the day very well in moments, the way that you remember traumatic things and, and also things that, you know, at this point, 18 years ago. Right. But that sort of accepting that there aren't those necessarily those clean lines in terms of like where you land on one side or the other of the good or bad day idea. This is the, you know, obvious ultimate reductio ad absurdum of that, you know, of the idea that like there's some good in everything that's, but I've written about it before. I mean, I still sort of feel strangely about the day in a different sort of way because it's become like this like meme for younger people. You know, I mean, it wasn't right. really like real to them in a lot of ways. That makes me feel 
old and all that. But I think of it as kind of like a, a day that changed my life very much for the better, but also like is a breaking point. The end of, I didn't really understand the world that ended that day, but like everything has been pretty shitty since then, broadly speaking. It uncorked a lot of badness. And among the many things that, you know, I have two children who are teenagers that I will, back in my day, as you were just saying, that I think about and being a little bit older than you, I have that much more of this kind of thing. Not only could you just walk onto an airplane, basically, at that time, there was a security check, but nothing like what we have now, this long ritual, or you could just walk into a ballpark for that matter. But I remember when bottles of Tylenol didn't have safety caps on them because no one had dosed them with arsenic or whatever it was Mm -hmm. back in, I guess, 82, 83. Every time I struggled to open a bottle of medication, I think, like, I remember when this wouldn't have been the case. Yeah. And we just have moved further and further away from a society that was in no way Edenic, but it accelerated so much away from the openness of that time to a kind of ongoing paranoia and cynicism that we see reflected in many things today. I think that's well said. I mean, I I do think that's kind of what it feels like to me, just the idea of you know, obviously, like a response to a trauma like that, it makes sense. And I don't think the response that we got made perfect sense, but traumatized people or nations don't necessarily do that. The question is like, it's a matter of going back and whether anything could ever change. Like I was talking to somebody about this the last time I was at a Mets game that like, will they ever go back to not playing God Bless America in the seventh inning, which every ballpark does now? Is there ever going to be sort of an end to the, you know, the troop of the night and all that stuff, which I don't find any of that offensive, really. But it's the sort of thing that like began as this kind of attempt at like a statement of unity or it's all, you know, it's always been kind of necessarily obscure. It's just furious, patriotic, security related gestures designed to make you sort of feel safer or feel something. Well, it was a statement of unity, but then it became performative. Mm -hmm. And the Yankees finally changed this recently because someone called out the long-deceased Kate Smith. Only for that reason, though. Only for that reason. But it always struck me as absurd that you were supposed to well up with tears or patriotic fervor because of this snippet of this recording from 80 years ago by this elephantine woman. I I mean, her shape has nothing to do with it, but like nobody even knew who that was. Like I do, or maybe you do. And it's a real like oafish, scratchy, (laughs) shitty version of it. It's not anything you'd like, you know, like the, the famous versions of the national anthem where you're like, well, this made this, it sounds beautiful. It was like Whitney Houston did a great job singing it. Like the Kate Smith thing is just pure bombast, like shitty dated bombast. And even when they had somebody on occasion weekend games and stuff doing it in person, it was hard to do. Gestures that aren't spontaneous don't really have a lot of power when you're Mm -hmm. crowd shamed into doing it. It's not real. And that's when it's time to stop. It's tough because once you get to that stage, that's when it becomes most difficult to stop because all of it i mean it helps that like our political discourse is so astoundingly cynical and stupid every single day how do you be the first team to decide that you don't want to do that shit anymore i mean you could just stop but then yeah you would just stop you wouldn't say a thing which i think i guess is is what it is but it's like the idea of ever going back to normal the idea of ever going to an airport and not seeing a bunch of people with like ar-15s and like reflective sunglasses or whatever like that may yeah that's never going to change it can't Which is a lot to process if you remember a time when it wasn't like that. It is. And I think all the time, and I was talking about this 
after on Twitter after El Paso and Dayton that another thing that's just feeder are the security lines at ballparks. And I don't want to draw anyone a diagram, but those will in no way deflect a determined person if it happens. Oh, quite the opposite. The opposite. Right. Which is not anything you'd like to think about. No, but yeah. it's terrible. People like to say stick to sports and all that, but this is part of the deal that anywhere people gather in large groups, there is now a vulnerability because we will not confront this problem of these weapons of mass destruction, basically being in the hands of private crazy people. The thing is, then you say to yourself, okay, well, I'm in charge of security now for Yankee Stadium or City Field or Fenway Park. Where am I going to draw the line? And there's nowhere you can do it. You can just keep backing it away from the building until it's practically across the river. But somewhere there is going to be that clot of people. And so there is no practical solution except to restrict the availability of those weapons. There is no way to promise anyone safety unless you do that. That's a, apparently a very difficult lesson to learn. Seems kind of obvious when you put it like that, and yet at the same time, vexing to be sort of reminded of that every time you have I mean, I don't mind. Somebody wants to make me walk through a metal detector to go into a Mets game, that's fine. I don't understand why they have to take my bottle of water. That seems like kind of not a security thing, but maybe more they just want me to buy water in there. Yeah, that. But again, it's like that's part of the problem with all of this too. The idea of like if there's a consumer product that needs banning and that consumer product has a vigorous lobby, you wind up with a situation like where we are now where the solution to there being too many guns is to make sure that maybe if everybody had a gun that they bought, then we would all be equal again and equally safe. But no, we just have the shootout at the OK Corral every day. Right, of course not. That's insanely stupid. Yeah, like the idea that everybody... But it's weird, though. You have to confront a whole spate of really, like, sort of long-standing and dark national fantasies there. We don't need to do that. Artie Shaw was a virtuoso clarinetist, one of the all-time greats of American music, but he was also a contrary SOB, as evidenced, among other things, by the fact that he was married eight times. Here's another example, this piece. In 1936, he was told he needed a theme song for his radio broadcasts, so he wrote this surrealistic, dirge-like piece we are presently listening to and titled it Nightmare. Perhaps Nightmare didn't describe the national mood in 1936, especially for radio audiences who were just tuning in listening for some nice songs that you could dance to, but it sure seems prescient now. And if you anticipated that all this is leading into our last break of the episode, then you too are prescient. We will pause for that break now, and when we return, I will conclude my conversation with David Roth. I hope you awake from your nightmare, or a pleasant dream if you're having one, into our final segment, and I'll see you then.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So we're getting very near the end here, and this is still off baseball, but I assume that people who do tune in when you're clicking, when you appear on the show, are not just Stephen Goldman fans, hi mom, but <laughs> David Roth fans as well. And I wanted to ask you about this because I didn't get a chance to do so when you were last on. It kind of fell between appearances. You wrote a lengthy and really well done piece on the present prince of this world, the president of the country for the New Republic. What you zeroed in on was, as you said, the true superpower of Trump's. I don't think it's prejudice or bigotry or whatever, because he's just surfing on something that was always there. The one thing that he's done, and this is not a, a superpower, is be irresponsible enough to uncork that bottle so that we'll never be able to put it back. But to have this kind of interactive relationship with television such that he will watch Fox and Fox will say something that sets him off. So he will comment on that and they will comment on what he commented on, which will set him off again. And then we have this kind of frothing perpetual motion machine of incoherence and seeming activity that I, I don't know where it goes. It doesn't go anywhere good, but it's as much. It doesn't go anywhere, period. And this was clear about him years ago. You know, it was clear about him when back when we were both working at SB Nation and I was goofing on him on Twitter, he's not capable of learning new stuff, right? Like he won't listen to anything. He can't see, let alone read. The people whose opinions he respects and the people, and he's done this, there's, this is documented, that he like patches Lou Dobbs and Sean Hannity into like strategy sessions in the White House, not just about election, but about policy. He thinks that they're experts. What he's going to do is watch TV all day long, which is what he's always done his whole life. You can't just say, like, the TV needs to be more good, because I don't think that's exactly how any of this works. And I also don't think that's an option here. But it is very difficult to imagine a way short of deposing him that any of this changes, because he's not... He also, is something that I've not, I don't think, said before, because it's always felt kind of embarrassing. Like, obviously, I did not want him to be elected. You know, I wasn't the keenest on Hillary, but it's... I think that's a, not a statement I need to explain much further. I did not want Donald Trump to become president. You were the third person on those Peter Strzok texts, I believe. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but there was this moment before he was inaugurated where I was like, maybe the office will awe him in some way. I didn't think that it would be in a, a good way or a meaningful way. I didn't think he'd become a good president because I don't think he's got it in him to do it. 
like I don't think he's a good person, but I also just don't think he's smart enough or empathetic enough, any of the things that you would want in a president. But I did think that there was this chance that the significance of the job would in some way make some kind of impression on him. That feels embarrassingly naive now because he hasn't changed anything. He's not doing anything differently than he would if he were retired right now. He's golfing exactly as much. He's watching TV. He's complaining on Twitter. The job itself is basically not being done. And I've been kind of nibbling at a story on this, but I don't really think I can quite figure out a way to say it or a reason to say it. But there's this sense that in a very meaningful way, like we're not being governed at all right now. Right. And that things are happening, but it's the things that sort of happen on autopilot or that run on rails, regardless of whether or not somebody is overseeing their administration and no one is overseeing it. But we're still capable of running concentration camps and we're still capable of appointing 37-year-old Federalist Society judges to lifetime appointments. And that stuff sort of continues, but it's not just that Trump is a bad president, like he's not there. And I think that's the part of it that is doubly confounding about all of this, because, you know, there's always there's been senses, you know, the last two years of, of Bush were like this as well. And I think the last two years of Obama also, where it's basically like the president is unpopular, there's divided government. And so basically, it just seems like nothing really happens. But I think in this case, it's like, there's just nobody at the wheel, period. No, I think that's very accurate. It's not just that he's not up to the job, like he's not trying to do it. And I don't know how I hope everything gets through this, but any of the God forbid scenarios, I mean, the recession is the one that's most immediate on everybody's mind at this moment. There's no one to do that job. Like there aren't even advisors. So I don't know. What do you do at that point? Unless the population of the country demands a change, we have to sit till 2020 and hope that things go well and hope that he accedes to the results of the election should he lose, because I'm not totally confident that he'll do that. I think about that too. The saving grace there is that he's a fucking tremendous wimp and extremely lazy. There's a chance that he just sort of takes it and goes, but then, you know, there's also a chance he doesn't lose at all. There's a chance that he refuses to acknowledge that it's real or whatever. And that's all obviously pretty scary too, because that's uncharted territory. Right. And what you said about maybe the, I mean, I think everybody hoped that, that the office would pick him up because now you're in a very select group where your peers, the role models, or at least the examples that you have to live up to are people like George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and Franklin Delano Roosevelt. So yeah, at least do more than cosplay the part, but that didn't happen. So what is another hallmark of all those people? Well, for the ones who didn't die in office like Roosevelt and Lincoln anyway, but for Washington and onward is the peaceful transfer of power And we're in a place where we really don't know what's going to happen in that regard. Because he doesn't care about any of that. He doesn't care. I mean, right. And it's the sort of thing where like if Lou Dobbs says on TV that like it's fake because like too many non-white Americans voted for the other guy or whatever, then he'll do that. Famous story about Trump and WWE. You know, he's got this long history with pro wrestling as part of a bit on WWE, where he was a frequent performer, like he's been in the ring. He like very badly sold a Stone Cold Stunner from Steve Austin himself. And yet there is a bit where on a broadcast, Vince McMahon, head of WWE, got into a limousine in one shot, and then the limousine blew up. And it was in effect, but it looked like he had died in a car bomb. And that was like part of, it was a storyline thing. It was like, you know, he came back the next week I was like, oh, you thought it would be that easy to get rid of me or whatever. Trump called WWE headquarters 
and demanded to know what had happened to Vince. Was he okay? <laughs> Not what could he do? Because that wasn't a concern. He thought it was real. I have a relative who, when he was a kid, and I don't know if, if it, this is still true, because he's a rather distant cousin that I haven't seen very often. When he was a child, he could not be exposed to television because if he was watching, this is back in the 80s, I don't know, Magnum P.I., and he saw a murder, he thought it was real. He could not cognitively <laughs> differentiate between reality and fiction. So when you say that, and I know it's really jejun at this point to bring up being there and Peter Sellers and Chauncey Gardner and all that, but that's where we're at. I like to watch and it's disturbing as hell. Yeah. It's good that your relative never got to see Tucker Carlson. <laughs> well, yeah, except I mean, seriously, but I think there are probably a lot more people like it and maybe not to that same extent, but as we saw with El Paso, there are definitely people who are activated by that kind of language and it's like reggie jackson in the naked gun must kill the queen yeah. all somebody has to say is the magic words and off they go yeah yeah that part's really cool i agree i like that part <laughs> of the naked gun anyway yes, right. not of, <laughs> yes of not not of anything else and to bring the whole thing back to baseball for a second the truly terrifying aspect of your column in the new republic which for those of us who love this great game of ours was chilling was the fact that you framed it with a proposed Saturday morning cartoon that would star Trump himself. And among the premises explored in this, which is essentially kind of like Scooby-Doo, Trump and his team. Plus, I don't know if there was a dog. There should have been a dog. There should be, but he hates dogs. So, but yeah. <laughs> Goes around, and germs. Goes around <laughs> the country solving problems for people. And among the problems that he was going to solve in this series, those of baseball, by taking over the New York Yankees, who were at that moment in the process of winning about their seventh World Series in a row. Yeah. The idea of this guy getting a hold of a baseball team is almost as frightening, if not more frightening, than the idea of him getting a hold of an NFL team, which if you read Jeff Perlman's book on the USFL, he likes to say it was a very close thing and they were begging him to come in. No, I think Pete Rozelle, when he got done laughing, made sure that that was never going to happen. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't, first of all, he doesn't have the money, but it's also like, yeah, the NFL owners like know a guy that, which is amazing when you consider what the bar is there. <laughs> They're like, Mark Davis gets a team, like Jerry Jones, like a man who just like a, a thin trail of Johnny Walker blue follows him <laughs> everywhere. Like, yeah, that guy gets to own like the, whatever, the flagship team in the league. But the idea of like Trump trying to buy the Bills and everybody's like, great, that's great, man. For sure. We're going to get right back to you on it. But yeah, Trump as a him wanting to own the Yankees is also beautiful. That tells you everything that you need to know about what his aspirations are is like someone calling and being like, you got to save the Yankees. And then he's like put in charge of the Yankees. And somebody that watched the mid to late 80s Steinbrenner years, like that's the Trumpiest shit until Trump. But here's the thing. And I am no fan of George Steinbrenner and Steinbrenner was a, a bastard in a lot of ways. Though I will say, like a lot of plutocrats, he was a charitable bastard in his mm -hmm. spare time. That You can say this about a lot of people, though, that they treated people individually like garbage and then gave to the police benevolent society in high dollars or, or whatever. And I don't want to erase those things. 
But George Steinbrenner bought that team for nothing and directly or indirectly, sometimes in spite of him, sometimes because of him, created a lot of value. And at the same time that Trump was screwing around with the USFL and driving that into the ground, Steinbrenner was getting huge cable bucks from MSG or the precursor to that sports channel, whatever it was. And then eventually the Yes Network, he died with that team worth well over a billion dollars Trump dreams of having something worth that much. Or of whatever, of even of simply owning something for a few years and not having it just absolutely catch fire by the end of it. <laughs> this is what we're saying. This is basically like what I'm saying is that there's no way that Trump would have had the perspicacity or the focus to sign Danny Tartable. <laughs> well, Danny Tartable is not maybe one to George Steinbrenner's credit. That one might actually have been during the so-called... That was the interregnum? Yeah, I think so. But even then, you can look this up. There's one of my favorite stats ever. And Danny Tartable had some decent years. But one of those years with the Yankees, I don't think he ever had a hit on a two-strike count. <laughs> Literally... <laughs> never battled back. If he was down 0-2 or 1-2, there was no like, oh, he battled back and drew the walk. The 1-2 pitch caught too much of the plate and he hit. No, every single time. I'm not exaggerating. You can look up the splits on baseball reference. It's there. Man has got to know his limitations. I respect that very much. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Danny Tartable, I don't need the third strike. We're done. They were shorter at bats. And just to wrap this up, just a few minutes ago, David, your neighbor slash cat, your cat neighbor, was cheering the Mets rally in the Braves game. It was 2-1 Mets. It is now 6-2 Braves. And the reason is that the final line of the night for Seth Lugo is 0.1 innings, five hits, five runs, all earned, one walk, no strikeouts. Uh, Is that good? I don't follow baseball very closely. That sounds high. (laughs) It's a little high. (laughs) Christ. David, thank you very much. As as always, I could do this five days a week with you. We'd never run out of things to talk about. It might not be the strictest baseball podcast no. in the world. It would definitely be interesting, and I would probably just quietly annex, let's remember some guy. You know what you got to do is, I talked about these many episodes back. I saw that you did American Gladiator, and I know that some of the other hosts have gotten into other series I want some Topps novelty cards, like the Welcome Back Cotter series. Yeah, you got to come on and open some wacky packs for this, man. Oh, I, I lo- the greatest disappointment, and we really will close on this, folks, but the greatest disappointment of my adult life is when I was in like fourth, fifth grade, I thought wacky packs were hilarious. And then someone put out a book that collected all of them. And I was like, man, this is some sub mad magazine shit. Yep. This is just not, I lost that. And I felt so disappointed, David like a never meet your heroes thing except for with like (laughs) really obvious plays on words involving breakfast cereals yeah I, i know the feeling i've been there before myself once again thank you very much david man thanks for having me when you've come to the end of another episode the only thing left to say is will the last person to leave the planet please close the door you can follow david roth on twitter at david underscore j underscore roth heavy lifting but worth it as for me you can follow me at go stephen goldman why go stephen goldman because there's no arriving, only the never-ending journey. We would do well to remember that. You can also write the entire Infinite Inning Bridge crew, by which I mean me, at infiniteinning at gmail.com. And there's a Facebook group. Go to Facebook, search Infinite Inning, knock. I will let you in. Most episodes get clarifying illustrations. Should you wish to support this show's ongoing mission to explore the width, depth, and breadth of the Infinite Inning, as well as gain access to daily dead player of the day capsules, 
please go to patreon.com slash the infinite inning. Thank you so very much. Finally, should you find yourself with a moment to spare, please go to the podcatcher of your choice and rate, review, and subscribe. It helps the show gain attention. And if your podcatcher does not allow you to do those things, well, there must be a better podcatcher out there, right? Our theme song, The Infinite Man, which you are listening to now and have been hearing throughout the episode, was a co-composition of myself and Dr. Rick Mooring, who says... Come into the garden, Maud, Tennyson wrote, for the black bat night has flown. And Maud said, tell me more about the black bat. Can we follow him? Well, if the Almighty doesn't clap back at my arrogance by asking, can't thou fish out Leviathan with a hook? And then zap me with a bolt of lightning when I reply, we ate all the Leviathans by 1882 and they were declared extinct in 1903. I'll be back next week with more tales and discussion from inside the infinite inning. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.